welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Please be seated. In 1989, I was uh, in England with a dear friend, Rob, and uh, we were ministering with a man called Gerald Coates and the Pioneer Movement. Um, we were going around from church to church and just spending an evening, a morning, ministering into that very colorful band of brothers. It was a Wednesday evening, it was my turn. As Rob and I cycled alternatively, he would preach, I would preach. We were young and uh, we, that was the best way we could cope with the speed with which we moved from church to church. It was a Wednesday night, I'll never forget, it was in a place called Marlow Maidenhead. If you know uh, England at all, you'll know Marlow Maidenhead is a very affluent community. Gorgeous homes, exquisite countryside, on and near the Thames, much affluence. I remember arriving at the school and the parking lot, as best as my memory recalls, was loaded with very fancy cars. I felt somewhat intimidated at that stage. I was still living in Africa. And um, so we got in, and we were very warmly welcomed. The worship started, Rob turned to me and he said to me, Chris, uh, what are you preaching on tonight? Now normally you kind of have your briefcase and you pull all your favorite messages together back in the day. We didn't know any better. But no matter what I looked at, I could find myself not anchoring any particular talk to this community. Rob asked me a second time, what are you preaching? As the worship was beginning to wind down, I said, Rob, I just can't strike gold. He said, buddy, you are on tonight. You are preaching. In desperation, I walked out the door on the side onto the asphalt area, which most school halls have, and I was crying out to God, saying, God, this is not like you, and it's not like me, to go into a gathering so close to the moment before we preach, and I really have no idea what to say. I look at my feet, and there is a little weed. Now, not the kind that many of you have dabbled with. This is an authentic <laughs> weed. This is a weed weed. This is the real deal. I pluck up this little weed that at best looked like a, 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 a shrunken daisy. And as I picked it up, I knew instantly what to preach on. I walked back in as Rob was kind of doing the, the, the common courtesy of great to be with you. Thank you for having us. Looking at me as if to say, are you okay? Are, are, are you good to go? They then asked me to come up to the little school hall platform and I walked up to the front, and it is common courtesy to at least acknowledge and thank people for the opportunity to minister, but not that morning. I felt the prophetic unction of God too weightedly to, to, to kind of preamble with other non-necessaries. And I stood in front of this room, my memory tells me 150, 200 people maybe, and, and I just stood there with this little flower, this little weed, and I simply said this. My opening word was, he loves me. He loves me not. This was not a big flower and I had no other message. I had to be filled with prophetic drama, so I just paused. He loves me. He loves me not. I don't think it took more than two, three minutes. Fortunately, the last little part, the last little petal was, he loves me. I turned to the congregation and I said, if you are not certain of the Father's love, I'm gonna ask you to come to the front 
in brackets, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> Would you come to the front because we want to pray with you? Now, again, memory and time doesn't always, isn't always kind with accuracy, but the best way that I remember the moment was one man sat at the back with his arms folded trying to stare me down, but every single man, woman, and child somewhere between walked and ran to the front, and by the time Rob and I had finished praying for people much, much later, it looked like a war zone up front. People were lying prostrate weeping, people were sitting weeping, people were standing with their arms raised, absolutely enraptured with God. It was a remarkable moment, but it haunted me. Why would such an affluent community of such means, of such position in society, of such a profile in commerce and industry, why would they rush to the front? Why were they so uncertain about the Father's love? I want you to grab your Bibles. We'll come back to that. And I want you to go with me to the book of Galatians, please. Now, if you are unacquainted with the text, that's absolutely fine. You go to the middle of the Bible and turn right. And you just keep going till you find a little book called Galatians. And uh, it's, a, it's a geographical region that Paul was writing to. In order to understand it, as always, we've got to find the story behind the story. The story behind the story is that Paul had gone into this region... Most theologians say southern Galatia. It was a marriage of the barbarian community and some of the more sophisticated metropolitan people that had moved up into the area and had planted a number of churches. As happens with many a church, after the initial surge of excitement and passion and enthusiasm, it began to wane somewhat. And at that most vulnerable of moments, the, the, the legalists and those who are licentious. In other words, the legalist in a simple form means that you have to have a salvation and a good behavior to bring a smile to heaven's face. The, 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 the licentious or the antinomian is the theological word is that you don't need the law at all. You can pretty much just do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. God's gonna smile on you anyway. And, and I see Paul, I, I always read the text visually. And then I can see Paul pacing up and down, a scribe sitting in the corner, and he's, he's got a broken heart. He says in the end of the fourth chapter, he says, I am in anguish as one about to give birth, as in childbirth. That's the pain, the extent of the groaning and the trauma and the travail with which he writes this passage. He says, I am in travail until Christ is formed in you, until you are not vulnerable to salvation plus good deeds, or vulnerable to God's going to love you, you can do whatever you want, and there are no implications. And he is groaning as one giving birth because he is so desperate to bring these churches into health, maturity, wholeness. I can see him pacing up and down thinking, how can I communicate to these people? What is the visual aid I can offer them? And being a man of the marketplace, as you know, both preacher and businessman, he leans towards the marketplace because most of these people did not have a grasp of the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. He's got to give them something that they see every day that makes sense to them. His mind quickly rushes to the marketplace and a poignant moment in which the marketplace whispers as a man and a son enters with pomp, with prosperity, with blessing, and he gets it. He says, aha. He says, I want you to write this down. This is what he writes. Galatians chapter four, and we'll pick up in verse one. He says, I mean, I'm reading from the ESV, 
which may differ slightly from your translation, depending on which you use. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Now remember, get the picture. He's pacing up and down. The churches are taking a beating. People are wobbling all over the show, uncertain. Am I supposed to behave better? Does it really matter to God? I don't really care. Churches are splitting straight down the middle based on those two axis points. But he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by him, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Father, guide us. Guide us. Epignosis, open up our eyes to see. Even as I read in my devotions today on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus opened their eyes to see and the scriptures became alive and they jumped up and down as if to say, now we see, now we see, now we see. Grant us clarity. Earth us in the wonder of this doctrine, in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Russ Moore, the dean of um, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, writes very eloquently of the time he adopted his two boys from Russia. He speaks of arriving at the Russian orphanage after the Russian uh, government had allocated two little boys, two brothers to him. He says when he and his wife Maria arrived in Russia, arrived at the orphanage from Moscow, the airport, Kat got the rented car and arrived there. He said as they got out the car, they were absolutely awed by the stench that overwhelmed them to the point of nausea. They looked at each other in somewhat intrigue and amazement, would walk through the door, introduce themselves to the orphanage staff, brought the papers to say there are two boys that have been allocated to us for adoption. The staff working through a translator was somewhat uh, courteous, a distance, but warm, took them down the passageway. And the further they walked down the passageway, the stench became more and more profound. They broke through the doors, entered into the room, and three things caught their attention. The first, there was no natural light in the room. Everything happened, happened in darkness. Secondly, every child was in a crib. A small, tiny crib, irrespective of the size of the child. And thirdly, the stench emanated from the fact that each child was lying in their own waist. They spent the day acquainting themselves where language was not common, the language of love was. And they spent the day with these two little boys, cleaning them, washing them, hugging them, feeding them, loving them. But at the end of the day, they had to leave. Their paperwork was not complete yet. And he speaks even now when, I, when, the, when I'm stirred again by the moment, he said when he and Maria walked down the passageway to get back in the car, to drive back to the airport, to fly back to Louisville, 
He said they could just hear the screeching of the two little boys who had tasted love for the first time, threw themselves in the crib and screeched unabated without reserve and the trauma of love given, love removed. He said he turned, tears streaming down his face, tears streaming down Maria's face, and he ran back into the room. He said he's put his hands on the two boys without realizing, quoting Jesus, said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back for you. Months passed before they got the call from the Russian embassy. I'm sure it was Boris. I can only imagine it would have to be a Boris. I'm, in which... The paperwork had been approved. The finances finally completed. They could go and get their two boys. The family was delighted. Grannies and grandpas running around with frantic joy and delight. Uncles and aunties, siblings, cousins were all rejoicing. The two little boys were coming home. They got on the plane, flew to Moscow, got a, car, got a, car, um, a rented car and went to fetch their two boys. Once again, the stench was overwhelming. They took one of the grandmas with, who kind of plucked some flowers from the garden, gave it to the staff, and they walked into this room, a dark room, a crib, and their human waste, and they washed and cleaned the little boys, expecting joy to be the common language. The problem was, as they took them outside of the doors of the orphanage, and the little boys threw their hands up in front of their faces, they realized that they'd never seen the sun before. Light was not understood by them. When the wind blew against their face for the first time, they tried to hide away from it because they'd never felt wind before. When they put them in the car chair, strapped them in and banged the car doors closed, they repulsed because they'd never heard a car door slam before. And as they drove to the airport to take their two boys home, it was for a moment awe and nervousness and then these two little boys started screaming, leaning back as if to say, take us back, take us back, take us back. This is all too scary. And he said, how could he explain to them that waiting for them were grannies and grandpas who were desperate to hug and to hold two new grandsons? How could he explain to them that the crib which they had left behind was to be replaced by their own room with toys, basketballs and baseballs and footballs and soccer balls and, and a closet full of clothes to replace their waist-worn attire? What could he tell as these kids were stunned and struck by the fear of the new journey that had begun? I wanna to speak to you today about the doctrine of adoption. Because when I thought back on Marlow Maidenhead and the fact that a whole room of men and women of means, of influence and position ran to the front because they wanted the certainty of knowing that God loved them, I realized that this doctrine was absent. This passage is a remarkable passage. It's a very simple passage. It's about what God adopts us out of. It's who adopts us and then what he adopts us into. You see, when Paul had that aha moment writing this, the marketplace always whispered with interest and intrigue when a nobleman, a man of means and influence walked into the marketplace for the first time and a young adopted boy by his side. When a man realized, ladies, that's why the gender in the language is male. Because when a man had no heir, he would look around amongst the slaves, amongst the poor and amongst the family and he would handpick a boy who would be groomed in school to become his heir and adopt him. And the historians of the day would write that this young boy who was adopted became more like 
the father than even the biological sons often became. But let's step back for a moment. Who or what are they adopted out of? The Bible is quite explicit. They were enslaved, held captive in chains to elementary principles or elemental spirits. What does that mean? That kind of sounds complicated language. It's quite simple. I drive a Land Rover. When I open the hood of my Land Rover, what stuns me is my inability to know what's happening down there. I know it's loud, and I know it's got lots of energy, and it's got lots of vooma, and I love the fact that I get onto the LA freeways, and it gets me there, and I feel so secure, and I drive my midnight black, blue kind of Land Rover with joy. I just don't know what gets me there, but I know there's something. And Paul is saying the engine room of society is governed by elemental spirits. We don't even know they're there, we can't necessarily see them, but they are no less effective just because they're less visible. And I don't wanna spend lots of time in this, folks, but I want us to just be, just to understand for a moment, just fleetingly understand that there is an engine room, a demonic engine room at work which activates and mobilizes society and you and I were once enslaved to him, it, them, and will once again be if we want to. Isn't it amazing that those little boys out of a crib, a small shrunken space, in dirty clothes and in darkness, the moment they were exposed to the light, they leaned back in their rented car saying, take me back, take me back. And Paul says, how can you want to go back to what you once were? How can you? What is so appealing? A crib, a small place. God gets Adam and Eve and he stands with them, arm around arm. Uh, let's say Virginia, the Blue Mountains. And he says, what do you see, Adam? What do you see? And they say, Father, we see hill upon hill, horizon upon horizon, opportunity among opportunity. And he says, that's what I have for you. Now increase. Enjoy the wonder and splendor of unity. Enjoy procreating. Have babies. Then he said that those babies marry, multiply many, many families and go and fill the earth. It's all yours. And they are absolutely enraptured by the wonder that the blue mountains are theirs. Satan comes along, and he says, tell me about the tree. So tell me about the tree. What should they have said? What, what, what should, they should have said, listen, Satan, can I talk to you about the mountains? If, if I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you about the mountains. I want to talk to you about the broad vista and the opportunities and the horizons that God gives. And Satan says, yeah, but about the tree. You see, folks, God has given us an endless opportunity, a vista of many opportunities, but Satan will shrink your world and mine to an event, a moment, or a personality. I was in Perth just a year ago, and I sat with a man who used to be with me in the Jesus People movement in the 70s. Great to see him again. Hugs and kisses. The only problem is, the moment the coffee was served, he took me back to the 70s, and the pain, and the trauma, and the hurt, and he busks now. He's in his 60s, and his living is a busker, when all of us were on global assignment to take the gospel to the nations, the enemy shrunk him to a, a moment of hurt and pain, and now he stands on the same street corner playing the same guitar, singing the same songs, the enemy says, yes, I've got you. And in your late 60s, you're still talking about a moment, an event, and a person because you've been shrunk back to a crib. I've got you, says the enemy. The elemental spirits are things like how the enemy makes me the center of my universe. My boy is, um, is in high school now, but when he was in elementary school, they did the, you know, the uh, regular 
photograph day. And, and, and for an extra five bucks, you could get a poem with a photograph. So I said to Meryl, what does the poem say? She, said, and this, she kind of looked at me and she said, you don't really want to hear. I said, no, tell me. She says, you are the star in your own galaxy. I didn't know whether to weep or wail. I am the star. My son is the star in his own galaxy. What? The enemy puts us in the center of our universe. We parent that way. We love that way. We speak that way. We act that way. I am the center of my crib. Don't you dare mess with my crib. When God says, I'll put you in the center of a global story, and vista upon vista will open up for you. Things like passion, sexuality, things like performance. Folks, I spoke to the ladies. Thank you, ladies, for letting me do that on Friday. But I'm stunned by the Ten Commandments that women write for themselves. Whips that they put in their hand. I'm not 139 pounds. I'm not looking like an hourglass. I don't don't have an ability to get rid of my wrinkles. I don't have the ability to lose my weight after a pregnancy. And the enemy just says, yes, yes, yes. I've got you ensnared by the elemental spirits, captive. Let's get to the good news. Who adopts us? It says, in the fullness of time, born of a woman. Now, what we tend to do, friends, when we read that is we dismiss that to theology. The Catholics will say, yes, the Virgin Mary. The Protestants will say, yes, she was a virgin, but you don't worship her. We miss the point. What is the point in this story? Jesus was adopted. That's the point of the story. He did not have a dad. I watched a Discovery Channel Thing, I saw it advertised, Jesus the early years, and I thought, at least let me have a look at it, historical and sociological implications. And one of the scenes, and again, if my memory helps me, one of the scenes that was most moving was Nazareth, this little town, just a, a few hundred thousand plus people, and the little boys in Nazareth getting together, whisper, 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 hey, Jesus, hey, you're a bastard. We know you haven't got a dad. Joseph, ha, 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 Joseph's not your pops. You bastard. And this picture of this little boy running down the streets of Nazareth to open the door and run into his mother's arms and Mary putting her arms around him and hugging him as the other little boys throw stones at him. That's what that means. The raw humanity of Jesus who understands all of our pain, all of our trauma, all of our alienation, all of the destitute nature so that not one of us in this room can say, Jesus, you don't understand. You, you, you don't get it. He does. He does. Born of a woman, born under the law, secondly. Again, it sounds very religious. It's not religious language. Russ and Mary, Maria, had to wait for the phone call to come from the Russian embassy. Why? It was their boys. The Russian court had given it to them. Why couldn't they just leave the first day, get these two little boys, chuck them into the rental car, and drive off with them? Because there's due process. And the due process was that every single page And every line on every page had to be initialed and signed off on. You say, Chris, does that really have any meaning in my life? Yes, ma'am, it certainly does. Your salvation and mine is a legal document. Why did those men and women of such dignity, standing, and affluence run to the front? Because they needed emotional certainty that God loved them. Instead of understanding there is a document in heaven called the Lamb's Book of Life in which their name is present, signed off, signed fully and completely. 
This is not a moving emotional moment in the text. This is a legal text in which the law is fully and completely signed off on. And so when Russ and Maria took the two little boys and landed in Moscow, go through customs and immigration, the big austere customs and immigration, men and women would look, go through it with a fine tooth comb, stamp. 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 You may go through. My best Russian accent. You may go through. <laughs> then they land in New York. Yeah, what's up? Oh, these are two Russian kids. I've had to do that. You go through a little side room, and it's quite scary. You're quite intimidated, to be honest, because they're quite brusque. They're quite, they're quite curt. They're quite invasive. You, I'm sitting there with Meryl and my two little girls, 1996, when we moved to the States. It's quite scary, except Russ and Maria went and put on the paper, and this big, can I just say, my mind jumps to Italian Bronx customs guy, goes through it. Stamp, stamp. This is a legal document. Those two little boys are legally, fully, and completely into the family of Russ and Maria Moore by a document. Dear friends, by a document. One of the, the elders that I, one of the staff members that I worked with when, before I handed over the church in LA, the story goes like this. Kevin and Shannon were high school sweethearts, unsaved, Long Beach, just cool. They go their own separate ways. In the interim, as they leave high school, Shannon has a relationship with a man as she becomes pregnant. Kennedy is born, gorgeous little girl. Kevin and Shannon reacquaint some years later. They get married. Jesus comes and interrupts their lives and brings them into a wonderful living relationship with him. But Kennedy has a biological father. At the age of eight, Kennedy comes to Shannon and she says, Mom, she says, I don't want, I can't remember his name, but her biological dad, she says, I don't want him to be my daddy anymore. I want Kevin. Shannon says, oh, Ken, that's a tough thing. She says, you need to go and speak to your dad. So she went to see him, and I don't know him, so this is casting no dispersion on him, but she said, Dad, I don't want you to be my dad anymore. I want Kevin to be my dad. And this man looked at this nine-year-old, and he said, all right, Kennedy, I'll give you your wish, but I want you to say it in front of a judge in a court of law. So this nine-year-old went to an L.A. court, I don't know if any of you have been in a court. Yeah, I can see some of you have been in a court. Um, it's a very scary moment. But what was profound, and I asked Kevin about this as I was studying this doctrine. I said, what was it like? And, and now all these years, Kennedy is now a gorgeous 22-year-old. She's at college. Uh, he, I said, Kev, what was it like? And his eyes filled with tears, and tears ran down his face. And I said, what was so profound about that moment? He said, Chris, when she sat up there and she looked her dad in the eyes and said, Dad, I no longer want you to be my dad. I want Kevin to be my dad. And you know, folks, there's something very sublime about that moment of adoption because every one of us has to sit in the seat before the judge, look at our old father, the father of lies and deceit and accusation, and say, Dad, I don't want you to be my dad anymore. I want this dad, the dad of love and forgiveness and kindness, yeah. 
This dad of redemption and wholeness and affection and perfection. I want this dad. But so many of us throw our arms back all the time. I want to go back to that dad. I want to go back to that small place where I lie in darkness in my own ways. Because what I can do in darkness, I think, will bring me joy and freedom. But it reintegrates me into bondage and sadness. True freedom happens where the light is. And dear friends, for some of you, I would with fatherly affection implore you today, you've got to sit before that father and say to him, I will not listen to your lies anymore. I was, I was at a prayer meeting. I wasn't leading it. I just happened to be at a prayer meeting, and it was a great time, just a kind of a deconstructed time of ministering to people. I look across the room, and there's a girl I've never seen before, guessing, 20 years old, blonde hair, and the Spirit of God speaks to me. I walk across to her. And I say to her, I've never met you. My name's Chris. She says, yes, I know who you are. I said, do you mind if I pray with you? My little girls, when they were small, used to love dancing with me. Come on, Daddy, let's dance. And they would jump up onto my feet like this, grip my waist, and I would go, na, 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 na. Oh, Daddy, we're dancing. Na, na, na. And I lean into her ear. I've got people there with me. I said, Kristen, I, that, that she introduced herself. I told her the story of my girls dancing with me. She starts weeping. I said, you never danced with your dad, did you? And her head just went from side to side. I said, now, would you mind? I said, I want you to put your hands across your chest like this. It just maintains integrity and dignity. And I, I said, put your toes on my shoes. And I put my arms around her, and we just stood there, Na, 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 We have to choose which dad we'll have. You can't have that dad and that dad. You can't flirt with a dad who accuses and destroys and bondage and, 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 and then want the freedom that this dad brings. Are you with me? Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the law. That's an economic word, friends. That's an economic word. It's a, it's a gloriously economic word. There's a young couple. She was uh, Tian's my, my son's school teacher, third grade. Gorgeous, both of them. He's like a model, dark, tall kind of surfer. She's gorgeous and blonde, but, but they can't have a baby. Why? Isn't it a tragedy? They are both phenomenal with kids. See, the thing that's keeping them from having a kid is not the desire for kids but it's the lack of finances to pay for it. In America, it's between three dollars and $30,000 to adopt, depending. And they don't have that. That's the only thing that's stopping them, is the redemption package. I was telling the ladies, I, I was asked to speak at my, brother's at my son's graduation. And I thought, what are the questions? What, what can I do that would intrigue these eighth graders? And I thought back to the African understanding of Lobola. Lobola is where the rural Africans put a price. The father puts a price tag on his daughter. So when a suitor comes to court and then asks for the daughter's hand in marriage, there is a very poignant, tender, kind of anticipated moment where the daughter sits invariably at her father's feet. The culture does not allow her to look at her dad. She's got to sit below him, and she's got to look away from him because it would be dishonorable to look at him. The suitor would come and sit on the other side of the room, and they would wait, and the father would appear disengaged and disinterested, and they would have to wait until the father was ready to talk. 
But you see, what was more profound, dear friends, was the moment the father put a price tag on his daughter because that is the moment the daughter would understand her real value in, in, in her dad's eyes. And she waits quietly, sitting with dignity, because now that moment will come when her soon-to-be husband knows how valuable she really is in the eyes of her father. And great is the moment when the father speaks up suddenly after a couple of drinks which they share. The father would get up and say, my daughter is worth 20 cows. And it's that moment that she rises on the inside saying, I am so valuable. I am so beautiful. I am so gorgeous in my father's eyes. Jesus did not negotiate a discount for you and me. He didn't try and get a better deal. You really are a 20 cow girl, but I'm going to see if I can get you for two. I don't know theologically and biologically if this is true, but I suspect that when Jesus hung on the cross, every ounce of blood was shed so that no sin was ever unpaid for. That when they stabbed him on the side and this, this mush came out, I wondered to what extent every single ounce of blood was accounted for every single sin of humankind. And ladies and gentlemen, that is an economic and legal act. We must understand This is not an emotional moment. I feel like I'm forgiven. I feel like God's down. No, it is a full legal moment of decree by the judge who declares that I've been fully propitiated. All my sins have been forgiven. Uh, They've turned into favor, and I walk out of the courtroom not just exonerated of all the crimes I did commit, but freed to go out there and know that the favor of the Father now rests on me. And the enemy doesn't want us to hear that message. He wants us to keep looking towards that father who always accuses us, always beats us up. And can I just say this with a broken heart? That there are people in this room who are my age and older, I'm 55, who are still living with the wounds and pains and disappointments of those who butchered you, beat you, abused you. As if this gospel has no access to your heart. The wonder of adoption is found in the certificate that the South African government puts out that you receive all the rights, all the privileges, all the benefits of being called a, a child of the Mangovan family as if you always were. It's a positional conclusion, not an emotional one. born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law. But then what does he save us into? Adopted out of, adopted by, adopted into. Two things quickly, I have a handful of minutes left. The Bible says that we are adopted by the spirit of sonship in which we call Abba, Father. Abba, Father. You know what was interesting? Russ tells of how these little kids would sit in their high chairs and they would come and they would take food when no one was looking and hide it into the high chair because they're not sure if there was more food coming. They would look under the pillow and they would find candy hidden because they're they're not sure if there's more candy or, or lollies coming. 
They would open the, the t-shirt drawer and there would be half-eaten muffins because they're not sure if there's more muffins coming. And he said it took months and months and months for them to understand that actually there is a closet full of food and there is more food coming. My dear friends, J.I. Packer, the great Canadian theologian, was asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? He said, a Christian knows three things. He said, they know the closeness of the Father, they know the affection of the Father, and they know the generosity of the Father. I am so grateful to people who are in the foster care system. Please. I am, uh, you, you are heroes of mine. I do not know how you can love to return. I do not know. I don't have the capacity for that. But many a Christian lives like a foster child. I better save because I'm not sure if there's more. And maybe, maybe God's going to get so angry with me, he's going to send me back into the foster care system. I'm sure there must have been moments where those two little boys, when Russ disciplined them, must have looked up thinking in their heart, I know what he's going to do. I know he's going to send us back to the orphanage. And there's so many Christians who live under perpetual fear that God's going to foster you. He's going to get rid of you. He's going to, he's going to pour you out because you are not worthy of his name. Being adopted into his family is not being fostered into his family. It's you take on his name with all the rights and privileges that it brings, whether you are naughty or not. There is no fear, dear friends, when we are adopted into his family. Richard McGovern, a friend of mine, has six kids, six kids, one of which is adopted. The adopted kid and his own biological kid are a similar age. I said, Rich, what is it like if the two girls are naughty together, and you discipline them. He said, Chris, it's amazing, and his, his eyes got all tender. He said, my adopted daughter takes it as rejection. My biological daughter says, thanks, Dad, you really, really love me. Folks, there are too many of us who live in a foster care notion. The moment God deals with us, the moment there is any form of soberness, there, there is this, well, God's rejecting me. God doesn't love me anymore. God doesn't care for me. I thought God was going to save my marriage. I thought God was going to get my kids off drugs. Look at all of this. God doesn't care for me. And we position ourselves back in the foster care system. And today that has to break. He is Abba Father. And because he loves me, he will discipline me. And because he loves me, he will hold me close and affectionate. And because he loves me, he is generous. You know why I love talking about tithing? Because for me, tithing is not a law in the Bible I honor. It's a revelation I have that God is generous. I don't have to negotiate with God and hide candy under the pillow and a half-eaten muffin in the closet. And I don't have to stick food away because I'm not really sure that God's going to look after me. I said to my family, when we first started out, we were poor as church mice. I was a school teacher, Merrill Slit College, when we planted Glenridge. We had no money. Even the furniture in our little one-bedroom department were bits and pieces, hand-me-downs. The closet in our main bedroom was... Um, was made by Merrill's dad, and, and the bed was made by Merrill's dad. We had no money. And in that moment, I said, babe, God is generous and kind. We will never be rich. We will only do what rich people do. Fast forward it. My daughter's 18 years old. She's about to get married, the one I fly to tomorrow in Perth. 
we park outside an exclusive private game park in South Africa. Over a thousand bucks a night per person. And the four of us, Nassia, Dana, Meryl, and I, we sit together and I said, girls, remember, remember, God is generous, God is kind, and we will never outgive him. Remember, and the four of us started weeping. We could not afford even the car we were driving because God is extremely generous. Even when I didn't earn money, honestly, just so that you can see my heart, when there were times in our church journey where there wasn't money for my salary, I still tithed. You know why? I would take money out of my savings to tithe. You know why? Because my God is profoundly generous. And there are times he wants to let me see in my heart just how generous I think he is. And then he opens up the heavens again. He said, come on, go and enjoy. An adopted kid does not need to hide the candy, but a foster kid is always uncertain. I land with this. Thank you for being so gracious. God doesn't just adopt us into him as our father, but he also adopts us into a family. Can you imagine the outcry if Russ and Maria landed in New York? Come through customs, two little Russian boys, totally everything's unfamiliar, and JFK, JFK is a horrible airport. Come through customs, come through immigration, get all their suitcases, they walk out, there's a taxi rank there, and he opens his wallet, he pulls out 20 bucks, and he gives it to the boys, and he says, all right, boys, it's all yours. They talk to each other in Russian. What do you mean? No, no, you know, my job is just to get you to America. There's a McDonald's there. There's a taxi rank there. We're going back to Louisville, Kentucky. Could you imagine the outcry in Russia? The two boys were taken out of but were not put into. Could you imagine the outcry in America? Two Russian boys were taken out of but never put into. My dear friends, God puts us into a family. Puts us into a local family. Listen, I love teasing uh, Tony. He's wonderful, he's eccentric, he's crazy, he's wild. But we all know there are times he's going to preach a message that you think, God, I've never heard anything that's extraordinary. This is from the throne room. And there are times you think, what on earth was that? What did he say? It's like lemons. It's like, <laughs> you with me? And then there are times they worship is you're just held riveted by it and you just lost. And then you're times there's a lot of noise and screams and shouting. And what is all this? And then there are times the elders sit with you and love you and you're at the hospital bed when the baby's born and they hold the kid and love and can. There's food and everything's bought. And there are times the phone doesn't ring and you think, is anyone out there? Did you know what I'm going through? Do you know I lost my job three months ago? No one's called me. Can I be crass? Because in our heart of hearts, we want to say to hell with us. I'm just going to be like a little orphan boy landing in JFK, and I'm just going to wander around. There are over a million Christians every single Sunday in Los Angeles who have no spiritual home. I think it's more. Wandering around, wondering why they never fully encounter the richness of all that God has. My middle daughter gets married next month. We tease her because my other two daughters were, my other two kids were blonde and she was brown. And she said, you know what, Dad? I know I was adopted. And I said, Miss D, of course you were. Of course you were adopted. 
She said, Dad, I got spanked more than the other kids. Of course you're adopted. Of course, we all know that. But you see, folks, when God adopts us, he puts us into a local family. When, they, when that car pulled up in Louisville, Kentucky, out of the shadows jumped the gra- two sets of grannies and grandpas, uncles and aunts, cousins, uh, neighbors jumped together, streamers, balloons, food aplenty. Can you imagine one of the little cousins saying, come on, language not being there, but the language of love being there, and they ran upstairs and say, this is your room. This is it. That's your bed, and that's your baseball, and that's your baseball glove, and that's your TV. Well, it's America, I'm sure. That's your TV. You hear, you hear what I'm saying? And three or four months later, the kid saying, gee, I wish I was back in Russia. You know, you hear what I'm saying? God adopts us into a local family of real people, and at times we're grumpy. And at times we're kind. And at times we ignore each other. And at times we gossip. And at times we say unhelpful things. And at times we speak when we should be quiet. And at times we just downright rude and sarcastic. But it's still the family God has put me into to come to maturity. I want to pray. And I want to ask you if I'm reading the prophetic moment. I'm going to ask you to settle this is home or find the right one. But there isn't time and space for us to wander around meaninglessness because God adopts us into a family of real people. Secondly, I really ask you to deal with your heart. I've walked with Jesus for 37 years now. You name it, it's happened to me, and probably I've done worse. I'm embarrassed to say There's no one I love more than Meryl, my wife. No one. And I've hurt her about as badly as I could have hurt anyone. But we're not going anywhere. I'm not going to hide food, muffins, lolly. I'm going to be adopted into his family of ordinary, good, solid people who are on a journey together and discover the wonder of family. Let's pray. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.